0: You are listening to 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so thrilled that you are listening. How do arts venues engage and delight their audiences during a pandemic, whilst also navigating a long list of new health and safety requirements? Well, this week, the Missouri Arts Council, together with the Missouri Arts Safety Alliance, tried to answer some of those questions with an online webinar and a group of panellists from venues like Kansas City's Nelson Atkins Museum, Union Station and the American Jazz Museum. How do you both focus on engagement of your patrons and also de-escalate people's stress levels about their safety, their rights, about new protocols at entrances and ticket booths? How do you make sure that everyone who enters your complex is wearing a mask when, like Union Station, you have 32 different entrances? How can arts and cultural organisations not only keep their patrons safe, but also make sure that their own staff and associates are protected. And it isn't only about physical safety. As so many businesses know, the simple act of going to work and engaging with other people is a mental struggle for a lot of people right now. And arts and cultural organisations, like other sectors, need to make sure that they are doing all they can to keep their staff mentally healthy. Those arts and cultural organisations which are open are continually having to balance and mitigate risk to reimagine their programming, shift from real life to virtual and sometimes back again and help their customers navigate new technology like QR codes and making sure politely that they keep their mask on when they are in the buildings. Everyone is trying to manage a multitude of expectations and as the CEO of Union Station said, how do you explain that santa isn't coming this year because covid each arts and cultural panelist said that the mantra they are stressing with their people is empathy and compassion remembering that we're all humans just trying our best to navigate these uncharted waters remembering that we all need to extend grace to each other at this time it is too bad grace seems to be in such short supply in our national political dialogue but at least we can practice it in the arts. So who is on the show this week? Well like last week we are a little bit all over the place this week a chat about art therapy with Michelle Itzek from the University of Indianapolis, a quick catch-up with Talking Horse Productions artistic director Adam Bretzky about their original monologue contest, and finally, a chat about comedy with my favourite American comedian in Berlin, Corey Ott. So, let's start with Michelle. Here she is. My first guest today is Michelle Itzak, a board-certified registered art therapist and licensed mental health counsellor and also assistant professor at the University of Indianapolis within the College of Behavioural Sciences. Michelle is a past president of the Indiana Art Therapy Association and was the founding art therapist at Riley Hospital for Children at Indiana University Health. Michelle will be speaking virtually next week on art therapy and ethics at a conference hosted by Mizzou's Center for Health Ethics in partnership with the university's Artist in Residence program. And as I have always wanted to know more about art therapy, it seems like a perfect opportunity to chat. I am delighted to welcome to Speaking of the Arts art therapist Michelle Itzak. Hello, Michelle. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to be here today. Well, I have so many things I want to ask you. So it's just absolutely perfect that you have time to chat. So thank you very much. So even though I once ran a community arts organization and I circled close to the worlds of art therapy, I'm still a little fuzzy on what is art therapy and what is simply art making that makes people feel better. So let's start with a super basic question. What is art therapy?
1: Absolutely. This is a question that we answer a lot, and when we're <laughs> training our students, we tell them, you're going to be answering this a lot. So you you need to have a good answer. Our national association is the American Art Therapy Association, and they've worked hard over the last several years to, to find an all-encompassing definition. And the most recent one that they have, and I feel like it Covers the definition of art therapy really well is that art therapy is an integrative mental health and human services profession that enriches the lives of individuals families and communities through active art making creative process applied psychological theory and human experience within a psychotherapeutic relationship and I think that's the key is that psychotherapeutic relationship. Everyone can use art materials, everyone can share art materials, but there's something different when an art therapist has that psychological training, uh, the art material training, and then they know how to form that psychotherapeutic relationship. So that's one of the key things that sets it apart from art facilitation or arts and crafts or just art for enjoyment purposes.
0: So when you're sitting with a client patient and they're making art, the psychotherapeutic component, is that guiding the art making or is it analyzing what has been made and helping them to understand what is in their subconscious?
1: So art therapists uh, typically provide some sort of a directive and clients will then create And make art based on that directive. And then art therapists are trained in how to talk to people about their artwork. So we aren't necessarily looking at it and analyzing, but we are asking them questions in order to help them understand their own symbolism, understand what the image means to them and how it helps inform them about their life and their wellness and their experiences. So that's where our skill set comes in is we don't analyze the artwork and tell them what it means. We help them figure out what it means to them.
0: So you're not looking over people's shoulders as they're doodling in notebooks and thinking, oh, <laughs> blimey, there's something they're burying there. No,
1: <laughs> no. And that's where, you know, I always, when I'm explaining art therapy to students, I say, you know, people, I find that people either latch onto the art piece and they assume that we're just fun art people who provide materials, or they latch onto that therapy piece and they think that we're analyzing. And I say, you know, it's, it's not really either of those. It's, it's a combination. We're, we're trained in knowing art material and knowing how to use them. And then we're trained in the psychology piece and the counseling piece of how to ask people questions in order to help them explore and gain insight.
0: So looking through the American Art Therapy Association's website, which is great and has a ton of information, one of the things that seem to be a recurring theme is making sure people understand what art therapy is not. And one of the bugbears seems to be adult (laughs) art colouring books, where some colouring book publishers are inaccurately using the term art therapy in their branding. But I mean, how do we even begin to combat that? It, it's
1: been a challenge. And that's one of the, that's one of the big things that art there, the American Art Therapy Association has taken on. And I think most art therapists that I know of who run across those art therapy coloring books, we all kind of uh, take a big sigh. And it, it is frustrating, you know, because people just assume, you know, coloring is relaxing, right? It can, it can be very calming and that's not a bad thing. And it, it can feel therapeutic, but There's no art therapist there helping to facilitate further and helping people to gain insight. So art can have a relaxing component to it, but that's not necessarily art therapy. You know, I think... A lot of times in society, we we add therapy on to anything that makes us feel good, right? Mm-hmm. You know, we talk about retail therapy, right? <laughs> Going shopping, that makes us feel good because we go buy something. Um, so sometimes the word therapy gets thrown around very easily in our culture. And then that makes it really challenging for people who are therapists to get people to actually understand what it is.
0: So, I mean, adult coloring books have certainly seen a huge surge in interest over the past few years. And there are adult coloring groups which kind of gather together as a way to kind of self-medicate them in extremely popular. What is the psychology behind why we're drawn to this form of self-care? What is it about coloring in? I think the the coloring
1: aspect is a way for us to calm our minds. You know, with so many things going on in the world, we're constantly thinking about what's on our to-do list, what we have to do today, tomorrow, the next day. We're distracted. Uh, we're, you know, paying attention to technology and we're in front of screens a lot. Coloring gives us something else to focus on, it gives us something to center on, and it's a way for us to kind of shut down and calm our brains. And so I think that's one of the things that makes it so appealing to people is it's a, a simple way that we can uh, turn our brains off from everything else that we're always thinking about and, and considering.
0: I know I love color by number books.
1: Yes. <laughs> you know, it's it's hard because as art therapists, we want anybody to do any kind of art. You know, we don't <laughs> want to discourage people from that. We just want people to understand the difference <laughs>
0: in what they're doing. So as an art therapist, you're really straddling kind of two two halves of the brain or two two worlds, art making and psychology. And you need to use the creative side of your brain because you're an art maker and also the analytic scientific part of your brain as a psychologist. For you, were you an artist with an interest in psychology or are you a psychologist who likes art? What came first for you? For me personally, it was
1: definitely the art. My grandmother was an art teacher and I always had art supplies and my parents signed me up for art lessons. When I was in second grade, I begged to take art lessons (laughs) and I I craved the coloring Mm. and – um. So for me, it was always the art piece. And when I went to college, I went in as an art major and I didn't know what else I wanted to do. I just knew that I wanted to do something with art. And I was very fortunate to have parents who they always encouraged that. And as I took classes, I took a art therapy, a pre-art therapy class and had a wonderful teacher who just made the class so interesting. And I also took a psychology class as an elective. And it just came very naturally to me. So um, I, I had learned about art therapy in high school when I had done a research paper. And then whenever I started to learn a little bit more about art and psychology in college, it just felt very natural and came to me. And so that art piece, I say, was always the first part. And then the psychology kind of came in afterwards. But there are definitely people who come from all walks of life and come to art therapy from very different perspectives. You know, I know people who've been art teachers, and they come back and get their master's in art therapy, or people who have been interested in the psychology field, and maybe they have a little bit of interest in art. So there's a wide variety of people who become art therapists.
0: So for you, you're coming at it from the point of view of a of fine art of, of painting and ceramics and, and hands on art. But does art therapy also incorporate music and dance and, and other forms of the arts? Or does it generally focus on fine art making? So you're talking about creative arts. So we have a larger
1: umbrella that we refer to as creative arts therapies, or sometimes people refer to them as expressive arts therapies. So we have this large umbrella. And then under that, we have specialization. So we have art therapy, we have music therapy, dance therapy, drama therapy, So all the different creative arts kind of fall under that umbrella. There are some programs where you can receive training as a creative arts therapist or an expressive arts therapist, and you get a little bit of training in each of those. And then there are also programs where you can specialize in each one. So, for instance, the program that I went to, it was specifically for art therapists and the program that I teach in here at UND, it's specifically for art therapy.
0: Tell me a little bit about your work at the children's hospital where you started the art therapy program and you worked in the burn unit I mean all children are natural art makers It doesn't occur to them that they can't make art that's just something we get when we become adults how do you guide their natural aptitude and help them heal through art making
1: so when I was at Riley it's a 260 plus bed hospital and they when they were looking for an art therapist they wanted somebody who would be willing to work throughout the entire hospital and not on just one unit you know a lot of times in hospitals people very naturally tend to think of art therapy or music therapy for people who are on the cancer units mm. um, oncology is a huge population and I did work with that population but I worked across the whole hospital and the burn unit was one of the units that I, I worked on frequently and I really enjoyed enjoyed being there. And so, you know, in the hospital, this is a very unnatural setting for a lot of children. They're kind of plucked out of home, they're plucked out of school, and they're put into this very sterile world. And so a huge part of working with children in that setting is helping to normalize their experience. Uh, It can be helping them process the traumas that they've experienced, and it can also be helping them have a voice in their treatment and being an advocate for them while they're in the hospital. So, um, a lot of times when I was referred patients for the burn unit, I would go in and kind of assess where the, where the child was. Were they ready to begin processing the trauma or were they not ready for that? And did they just need someone to come in and provide a normalizing situation with them? So it really kind of depends on the, the patient and where they are. And as an art therapist, you need to assess what's, what's happening for that patient in the moment. And then you kind of assess from there where you need to go with the therapy.
0: At the Mizzou Conference, it's specifically on the ethics of burn care. How do you see art therapy being maybe specifically healing for people who have experienced burns? There are a lot of ways that it can be healing
1: with the children that I worked with, um, and even with adults, Trauma is stored in images, and those images are stored more on the the right side of the brain. And so asking someone to speak about their trauma can be really challenging because they may not have put words with it. They may not have associated words with that trauma. And so when you ask someone to create art about it, it can help them express that trauma a little bit differently. So As an art therapist working with burn patients, we can um, help them begin to process the trauma. We can help them deal with their emotions and feelings. There may be depression. There may be sadness. We're going to help them work on processing what it's going to be like. Their life may be very different. You know, after they've experienced a burn, there may be some things that they aren't able to do as well or maybe not as at all. And so helping them to process what life is going to look like afterwards. There can also be body image changes, right? So if you have a burn, that can have a significant impact on skin. And depending on where it is, that can impact people's body image and self-esteem. So those are things that we, that we might also want to work on. And then, you know, in the hospital, we're working on mental health and expressing themselves. But then we also have to think about the patient long-term. They're going to be discharged and the problems and the struggles don't just stop when they leave the hospital. So making sure that they have someone that they can speak to or reach out to when they get out of the hospital for some more of that long-term care is also really important.
0: Have you got any case studies that you could share with us? Sure.
1: I... We've worked with a wide, wide range of patients. And one I'll share one that I'm going to talk a little bit about at the conference. One that I worked with is a a little girl. She was six years old and she was in a house fire and she was burned over a significant portion of her body. And um, she had bandages over her hands. And so she really wasn't able to do a whole lot. She couldn't feed herself. She couldn't play with toys because her hands were bandaged. And so I was consulted to go in and work with her and you know, as an art therapist, we have to be creative and we have to be able to work with whatever materials we have on hand. And so I often liked to use the, the medical supplies. You know, kids always thought that was fun to be able to use the medical supplies for something different. Mm-hmm. And so I had to figure out a way that this little girl was going to create art. And I wanted to give her some empowerment because she felt like she couldn't do anything for herself anymore. You know, And at six years old, that's when children, they've learned how to um, dress themselves. They've learned how to feed themselves and clothe themselves. And she had just gained that. And to have it taken away, um, there was a sense of a loss of empowerment. So I really wanted to work on empowering her in our session. So I found some sponges that the staff usually use to swab mouths. And I figured out a way to attach them to her bandages. And so she had these Little swabs attached to her bandages and I held a canvas for her and she was she was laying in her bed and so I had to kind of get up in a different position and angle it so she could reach it. And so she just held her hands there and I helped her dip them into paint and she was able to paint on the canvas. And it looked like, I don't know if you've ever been to like a zoo and a lot of times they'll have like elephant paintings Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. animal paintings. Uh, It looked very much like that, you know, because she was, she wasn't able to move a whole lot. She wasn't super mobile, but she was able to kind of make these swipes with the sponges and she made those swipes and the colors appeared on the canvas and she was just beyond Static. She began shouting, I did it. I did it. Look what I did. You know, she was so proud of herself and she wanted to show it off to all the nurses and her family. Um, And it just, you could tell there was a kind of this complete transformation in her demeanor and Mm -hmm. how she felt. And she was so proud that she did something and she was able to kind of take control and, and do something with her time there. So that's just a little bit of that case example, but it was a really great moment to see her finally realize oh my gosh, I I can take control back and I can do something and I, I can make something.
0: Does the choice of color ever come into play when people are making art? I mean, I think we're all attracted to different colors depending on kind of what our mood is. Do you see that as significant in the world of art therapy? We have a
1: saying, something that I was trained in, and we always say, color is significant only if it's significant. <laughs> and so um, color is so idiosyncratic and Everyone ascribes different meanings to color. You know, if I say the color red, you might think of anger or violence, whereas someone else might think of love and passion. And so again, you know, we can't really analyze what color means to other people, but we can surely facilitate conversations with our clients about what does this color mean to you? Or I noticed that you incorporated a lot of this color. Tell me about what that represents or what that symbolizes to you. So um, I wouldn't say that We definitely have any specific things that we ascribe color to, but it's really more finding out what that color means to each of our clients and and helping them figure out that symbolism for themselves.
0: I'm guessing that when you work with adults, there are some hurdles to art making because relatively early in our education, for many of us, we get an idea that we either can or cannot do art. So talk to me about art therapy as a practice with adults and how you overcome those hurdles, that prejudgment of like, oh, well, I can't do art.
1: Absolutely. And I think you're you're spot on. A lot of times we do run into adults who have maybe they had a negative experience as a child and someone told them that something that they did wasn't good or they got negative feedback that they weren't as good as someone else. So it can be really challenging sometimes to work with adults, but art therapists have different skills and techniques and ways of asking people to engage in the art making and once they get into that process then sometimes it becomes a little easier so I always make sure that people know in art therapy we're not trying to make beautiful masterpieces that are going to be hung in a museum that's not that's not our goal you know we are simply creating art to help you express yourself and to gain some insight into your life and your experiences so it, it's not about what it looks like it's not the product we we often have a phrase that we say it's not about the product, it's about the process of creating. And so sometimes I might ask someone to take a marker or take a crayon and make a scribble on a piece of paper, right? Everybody can do a scribble. And so asking them to create a scribble, and then we'll stop and we'll look at it and we'll say, all right, what can we see in here? Or what can we find in this image that we can maybe turn into something? And those beginning introductory um, directives can kind of help people ease people into that art making process and then once people get comfortable with it you can go a lot of different directions
0: would you say that the majority of the time people are working kind of in an abstract dimension with the art they're putting down on a surface or are people wanting to recreate specific images Great question. And again, I think that's going to be
1: idiosyncratic to your clients. Some people work in a very abstract manner, and that's their way of um, representing their thoughts and feelings is abstractly. Other people are going to be very concrete and will create images of, you know, houses or people or things that they know. We also sometimes use collage materials, you know, cut out images from magazines. So people may want a very specific image that they're interested in showing. So it can range from abstract to very concrete imagery.
0: So of course, we are all living through something of a global trauma right now. And I'm curious about how you see art therapy as being uniquely suited to supporting mental health right now that we're all struggling with. Absolutely. Art therapy is a great way
1: to support people right now. We are kind of facing um, with this global pandemic, we're seeing a lot of mental health issues. And There are art therapists who are conducting virtual art therapy online, and so you can reach out to people no matter where you are. You know, art therapy, I think, is becoming more accessible because we have these virtual platforms. People can engage in that way, and art therapy has a way to foster a sense of connection, and so I think people who are feeling isolated can, you know, reach out to an art therapist or find an art therapy group, and they can feel a sense of connection in that way. And then I think art therapy just gives us a different way to process, you know, everything that's happening and going on. It's it's so hard to put words to what's happening and the changes that we're faced with. And so art therapy is a great way for people to process those things, maybe without words.
0: Are you seeing an increase in demand for your services during this time? Absolutely.
1: Yes. <laughs> um, I think people you know our therapists and i think most mental health professionals have we we always kind of say that mental health is important but i think this whole situation has really emphasized that and people are starting to recognize that and so as people are recognizing it as companies are recognizing it you know they're really encouraging their staff to seek mental health services whether it's through um, their benefits or in some other way shape or form but there's definitely a high demand for mental health services and our therapy right now
0: I mean, and certainly many art therapists are themselves frontline workers. I think over 50% I read in a survey are still going to work in person every day. Uh, but at the same time, a quarter of art therapists have lost their job or been furloughed or had their pay cut. So as well as dealing with our collective pandemic trauma and the many increases in specific areas like domestic abuse and racism and stress management and anxiety, you are yourselves are also under severe stress right now as a profession are you um healing each other (laughs) are you (laughs) is there a kind of artistic outpouring you've seen from your own profession this year
1: Yes, that's definitely conversation that's happening in our profession is how how are we caring for other people and how are we caring for each other and supporting one another? You are absolutely right. You know, mental health professionals aren't therapists. We are frontline workers. We are still going to work. We are still providing services. And we are you know, we're exposed to what we might consider, you know, secondary trauma. So if an art therapist is helping a healthcare worker, they may be hearing stories or hearing the traumas that those people are experiencing. So we're hearing that trauma and taking that trauma, um, taking that on. And so it's really important for us to utilize our training about how to take care of ourselves and support one another, check in with our colleagues and make sure that we are all supporting one another in this time.
0: 2020, of course, has also been a year when racial inequality has come once again into sharper focus, and the arts, have, the arts generally have certainly been found wanting. So I think it's worth noting that in the world of art therapy, it is 30 years since the Multicultural Committee was formed, and there were many pioneers of colour within the profession. Can you talk a little bit about the work being done by the Multiracial Committee? I don't know how familiar you are with what they do, but I thought that was very interesting, how long that has been a, a cornerstone of art therapy.
1: Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Art therapists are very supportive of multiculturalism, and it's one of our key educational components that our art therapists are being trained in diversity and multicultural issues. And I know one project that's going on right now with the Multicultural Committee is they are asking art therapists to contribute to a multicultural quilt. Um, This has been a tradition that they've done in the past. We typically do it at our American Art Therapy Association conference that's held in the fall. And since this year, the the conference is going to be virtual. They're asking for people to contribute virtually. So different art therapists can contribute a square or a piece of a quilt about a cultural or multicultural diversity issue. And then those are all put together and it's auctioned off. And that's used to help raise money for one of our awards that emphasizes diversity and multiculturalism. So those are huge components for the American Art Therapy Therapy association. And it's been a huge focus the last few years of making sure that we have adequate training in multiculturalism and
0: diversity. So before we finish, just give us a quick overview on what you're going to be talking about here when you come to talk at the virtual conference for Mizzou. So as you
1: mentioned, it's the ethics and healthcare conference. And so I'm going to be focusing on ethical care, which means we are wanting to treat patients holistically. And when we treat somebody holistically, that means all parts of the human, not necessarily just the physical. You know, when they're in the hospital, the doctors are focusing on that piece, but we also need to address things like the psychological component, the emotional component, the spiritual component if we want to provide ethical care, we need to treat every aspect of the patient. And so I'm going to be talking about how art therapy fits into holistic care for people who have experienced burns. And like I talked a little bit earlier, I'm going to give some case examples of patients. But I really just want to emphasize that piece about, you know, if we want to treat patients ethically and holistically, we need to think about other aspects besides just the medical and art therapy can address that psychological, the emotional, the spiritual it has a way to address all of those things. And so it's a, a really great piece um, to be able to offer art therapy to people who've experienced burns whenever we're looking at ethical treatment
0: of the entire patient. Well, Michelle, thank you so much. My guest today has been art therapist Michelle Itzak, who will be speaking via Zoom about art therapy and ethics next Friday, October the 9th, on the ethics of burn care at a conference hosted by Mizzou's Center for Health Ethics in partnership with the university's Artist in Residence program. And if you'd like to listen to her talk, you can do that without attending the whole conference. To register just for Michelle's talk, you can contact Karen Schmidt at the University of Missouri on 573 Eight eight two three four five eight, And she can help get you set up with a Zoom link. Michelle, it has been such a delight talking to you today. And thank you so much for all the information you gave us about art therapy. It's fascinating. And uh, I feel like I know a little bit more now. <laughs> Great. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Michelle. Next stop on this week's tour of the arts is Talking Horse Productions Artistic Director, Adam Bretzky. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. I have had such a great time all month watching your daily original monologue contest releases which have run the gamut from absolutely laugh out loud hilarious to tragic and moving and have put back on my screen lots of my favourite Columbia actors that I haven't seen for so many months so it's been absolutely brilliant thank you very much. And I thought we should do a quick catch-up with you as the month ends right this week. And I want to see how everything is going because it's right at the very end of the contest. And last time we talked to you was right at the very beginning of the contest. So what have you been hearing from people about the monologues?
2: Well, this has been a terrific experience. And thank you so much for bringing me on to talk about it because... We didn't really know what to expect when we started this, and now that the month has completed, we've had 36 original monologues from 36 different writers and 36 different actors, so you can imagine it's been quite a process to put it all together, and it's been really exciting to have some new content uh, from our arts organizations over the entire month, uh, especially since we've gone so long without it. As you mentioned, we've had everything from comedy to drama, and now it is up to our patrons and our and your listeners and the people that follow us on Facebook to help us determine a winner. So the way this contest works is that it is all by donations. Every dollar that is donated to any of the videos counts as a vote towards that video. So if you go onto Facebook and you find these monologues, you will always see a PayPal link. You can click on that PayPal link. Donate the amount that you'd like to to contribute to that video and then just let us know which video you'd like to donate that towards.
0: So one thing that has astounded and delighted me is the incredible geographical diversity of the playwrights. I thought I would see more names that I recognized from the <laughs> Columbia community. But but by far, the majority of writers are from well beyond Columbia's city limits. How on earth did you get the word out so far afield?
2: You know, I'd love to tell you that this was a matter <laughs> of planning and direct input and all that. But really it's because I think there are so many creators of art and of monologues and of playwriting that are just so hungry for something to do right now because this is a worldwide pandemic and theater is not exactly a safe place to go to right now. So these creators saw an opportunity. Maybe they were searching for it on Facebook. Maybe they just had a friend of a friend of a friend who saw this and said, oh, I should tell them about that. But really, it's just being connected to the internet and being connected to social media that we were able to take on so many different playwrights to feature in this contest.
0: So I was looking back over the month to see if I could narrow down a favorite. And it's really tough. I like so many of them. And I've lost count of who I have voted for at this point. (laughs) (laughs) But I did want to give a, for me anyway, this is my personal opinion, a special thumbs up to two. One is, forgive me, Cosmo, I have sinned, which I think you mentioned last time, maybe was one of your favourites. And it is just hilarious. Every every word is a, every sentence is a heading from the front page of Cosmo. And they are hilariously grouped. And the performer, Jessie Green, does such an incredible job with them. I have watched that so many times because it just makes me laugh every time I watch it. So forgive me, Cosmo, I have sinned. Excellent. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah, Jessie is brilliant. And, uh, you know, this was a very unique monologue that I think scared her a little bit when she first <laughs> got it. But, I mean, she is just such a brilliant actress that she took it and just knocked it right out of the park.
0: It was flawless. And another one that I loved is What a Friend We Have in Satan, performed by the always scintillating Dana Bocchi. Yes. Uh, <laughs> That was brilliant. And and I think what I loved about both of those, Dana and Jesses, is even though they were performing a monologue in front of a computer screen, I mean, they performed the monologue. They didn't just say the monologue. It was very active, physically active as well, which added to the comedy.
2: Yeah, it's been great to see the different processes that actors have taken to put these together. Some really took some artistic license and using the medium as less of a crutch and more as a lift to the experience.
0: Right. You can you can definitely see that. So without revealing anything, do you get a sense of what people are seeking out right now? Are we looking for comedies or are we looking for works that move us emotionally?
2: You know, I think the the true answer is people are just looking for quality, whether it's comedy or drama, they want to see that high talent. Put forward in this medium that we now live in. You know, the fact of the matter is, Zoom performances and television and movies, those aren't going away. And that's somewhat safe for us to be able to absorb and enjoy. And for a lot of us, arts organizations that are so used to doing live performances, this has been an adjustment period. But creating this this idea for you know 36 different performances, there's something for everybody. And even if you don't like one, there's probably another one that you latch on to. So I think having that variety is very important because one day you might want comedy and then one day you might want a very serious piece like the one that we posted on the... Twenty eighth with Ed, uh, the Nazi salute.
0: Mm-hmm. That was very moving. Well, I've put together a very short little few taster clips from the last oh, month. So let's let's take a quick listen, and um, and then you can people can seek them out on your Facebook page if they want to hear more. There is a story about my father's sister, Auntie Lois, that has hung around these parts for years, settling like winter storm clouds, slung low over the jagged ice-riddled waters of the Atlantic. A story that has put a dark stain on the Macmillan family name. Auntie's fiancé, Rupert Rumpkin, had been murdered. Charges were never brought as the murder weapon that had sliced at the man's throat.
3: Hello, Columbia! Say, is it warm in here, or is it just me? <laughs> that joke never gets old. Okay, okay, thank you. Um, come on, we need to get started, and there's a lot to cover tonight. First, allow me to introduce myself. I am called many things. The old serpent, Mephistopheles, Lucifer, Prince of Darkness. That's probably my fave, but I am best known to all of you as Satan. What? No renouncing of
1: me at all. Okay, okay, hi, hi. Please, before you say anything, I just want to say that I know it totally looks like I plowed into your mailbox like I wasn't paying even the slightest bit of attention to what I was doing, but I just want to say that I was, in fact, paying attention. Just to something else. You see, I thought I saw a buffalo. A buffalo, like a bison? Yes, I know we are in suburban Indianapolis and it seems very, very unlikely, but I thought I saw one. And so I turned to watch it because, hello, it was a buffalo. Except it wasn't a buffalo, it was a large- The number one sex wish. Two weeks to tight cheeks, three times a boyfriend can become violent, four new vibrators, five things you do that creep him out in bed, six loving gestures that secretly irk him, seven new ways to be happy, eight things in your closet that make you feel chunky, nine times you won't burn in hell for being bitchy, ten times it's okay to be a bitch.
0: And that was in order. Elizabeth Alexander performing Case Closed, Dana Bocky in What a Friend We Have in Satan, Mary Shaw in Suburban Buffalo Sighting, and Jesse Green performing Forgive Me, Cosmo, I Have Sinned, all part of Talking Horse Productions' original monologue contest. So the purpose of the monologue series, as well as to entertain us clearly, is as a fundraiser for Talking Horse Productions. And I'm wondering, has it financially lived up to your expectations
2: you know i think the challenge right now being what it is is that there's so many people that are ready to donate and to help us out but they were waiting until the very last minute to say okay well each monologue just keeps getting better and so i can't decide right now which one i want to give the money to but now, being that this is Friday, we've got two days left over the weekend that you can still donate to your favorites. And this is the time to be very generous. Remember that every dollar counts as a vote towards your favorite piece. And of course, some of the pieces are pretty tight in terms of who our leader is. So mm-hmm. this is the time to send somebody over the top. Your donation can help do that.
0: How many How many would you say are in the contender numbers? Have you got like five that are really tight with each other or 10?
2: I've got about 10 that are really tight with each other right now. And I don't want to reveal too much (laughs) because I I want people to donate to their favorites, especially if they're feeling extra generous, because whatever money we make from this contest goes directly to the theater. Now, the exception is our winning video, the one that takes in the most money, the winners will actually get to take that prize money that they were able to pull. So we'll donate half to the actor and half to the writer of it, and then they get to choose what they do with that. I know that there are a few actors that have said that they've got some causes that they're going to be putting their money towards. So if you've got a favorite actor, now's the time to put it towards them.
0: So this weekend, we vote with financial conviction for our favorites, (laughs) and we can vote up until when? Up until Sunday at midnight?
2: Sunday at midnight is when we'll call it out. I'll start tallying up the results on Monday morning, and then we'll be reporting as soon as we have a a grand winner.
0: And the way to do that, can you do that via your website or does it have to go via Facebook?
2: No, it does not have to go via Facebook. So we've got the same PayPal link on our website. If you just want to visit talkinghorseproductions.org, the biggest thing there is if you donate through PayPal, you want to leave us a note or instructions as to which video that donation should go towards. If for whatever reason you go through the full process and you don't enter instructions and then you go, oh my gosh, I I didn't donate to my favorite actor, shoot me an email, uh, talkinghorseproductions at gmail.com. I will take care of that for you.
0: Perfect. I saw that somebody had posted that on Facebook. Oh, I forgot to say who I'm voting for.
2: Yeah. And I'm watching that too. So if you comment <laughs> on the post, I donated, but I didn't say who it was for. I'll find it.
0: <laughs> Perfect. Well, I shall make my have to make my final choices this weekend and, and vote with conviction. But I don't know, <laughs> it's going to be tough. But it's been fantastic. Brilliant idea. Fantastically executed. Thank you so much, Adam, for keeping us entertained all through September.
2: Thank you, Diana. I really appreciate your support. For the last segment on today's show,
0: we are going to go a little farther afield to chat with my pal Cory Ott in Berlin. Corey knows Columbia well, as she is a graduate of Stevens College, and for many years now has lived and worked in Germany, where she works for the German news service agency Deutsche Welle, and is also a comedian who works at many venues across the country, or at least did until COVID brought everything to a screeching halt. So to find out what comedy looks like in the time of a global pandemic. I am delighted to welcome to the show all the way from the heart of Europe, Coriott. Hello, Corey. Well, hello, hello. Thank
3: you so much for having me. This is going to be fun. It is.
0: I'm so excited you said yes. It is a strange time to be in the business of live performances. How is your calendar of engagements looking these days?
3: Pretty empty. Got a bit of that sort of like, you know, Death Valley look to it, <laughs> you know, but all the plans, all the things we were looking forward to, the weddings in Tyrol in Austria, you know, a bit of the sound of music feel to it, canceled another, you know, one show here, one show there. And yeah, I mean, as of February, I had seven engagements canceled and it's been slow going since then. I mean, comedy wise, it's been basically... Nothing. They've opened some theaters as of the 1st of September, but these are also ones then where you have like a piano player on stage with a singer with a plastic shield in front and that's it. Because, you know, dancers, singers, musicals, you know, I do comedy animation at, at the tables where you're really close to the people. These type of things are absolutely impossible at the moment. There's no chance whatsoever to even consider doing the dinner, like the Cirque du Soleil style dinner restaurant, um, um, Penemence or Senses or Teatro Zanzani, this type of style of dinner restaurant comedy is just unthinkable. What were those two styles you just said? Yeah, well, I, um, I'm not sure this is quite a European style. I've been performing for the last 23 years for it was started out being called Pump Duck and Circumstance. It was um, they serve duck for dinner. So it's a <laughs> four and a half hour show. And it's with a, a Michelin star cook. So they have a three, three to four course dinner, depending on what they order. And this very famous cook, either a germ, famous German cook or a famous British cook or a Dutch cook, depending on where the show is happening. They um, put their name and their food and they offer it to Palazzo or Deck and Circumstance, and then we perform. I write the shows, I'm like the comedy moderator, we do like, and it's in the people, it's in this beautiful 1920s mirrored tent that they make in Belgium that are absolutely beautiful. It looks like the boudoir of a madame from an (laughs) old-fashioned cat house somewhere, but it is absolutely magical when you walk in, and they have shows like that as well in the States. Teatro Zanzani, there's one in San Francisco, one in Seattle, I think one in Chicago. And that's like a copy of what I've been doing, like the mothership (laughs) that started like in 1993. And that's what I've been doing ever since, you know, and this type of thing is, you know, I play a character, different crazy characters, and the people come in, sit down, 450 people a night. And um, yeah, I introduce them, I'm like the madam of the evening, and I like lead them throughout the night. And in that they have artists, Like trapeze artists or hand-to-hand artists or contortionists or you name it, anything Cirque du Soleil that can bend and put their legs over their heads, (laughs) they're the ones that are hired and they have me stay on the ground and talk about it. So
0: (laughs) So that is over. I mean, how does that come back?
3: Who knows? I mean, honestly, who knows? I mean, you've got these hot, sweaty Russian bodies swinging over your head while you're eating a meal. I don't even imagine, like, even it gives me the heaps at the moment. I mean, let me tell you, having hot, sweaty Russian men sweating over me has never been a problem. But, you know, if you have people paying entrance to come and see it, and they're the ones who are going to have to have a little of that sweat drip on them, those stays are not as, it's not as sexy as it used to be. Let's put it that way.
0: So you are an American performing comedy in Germany. Do you perform American style jokes in German or do you perform German comedy in English?
3: (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, we have to break the stigma that Germans don't understand comedy and don't have any humor. (laughs) So this is what, first of all, I always like to say the only reason I'm successful here is because the bar is set super low (laughs) and they drink a lot. They do. A lot of alcohol involved. You know, I look like Claudia Schiffer after three or three beers, and I'm incredibly funny after that as well. So, (laughs) But no, the Germans are a great audience. They themselves are not particularly funny, but they do love... This sense of humor and me, I write everything in English, and then I work with a guy together, and he helps me then translate the jokes into German because a lot of it is lost in translation. Like some things just do not translate, and so I'll say to him, "Okay, but this is what I meant," and he'll be like, "Oh, okay." And then of course it'll be like (laughs) fourteen syllables more than the other one, and the joke dies. And I go, "All right, forget it. Let's do a different one." But uh, yeah, it's it's a process for sure. But I perform in German. German with an incredibly bad American accent. And the Germans find it adorable for some bizarre reason. (laughs) God love them. So
0: we talk about somebody having
3: like, oh, he has a very British sense of
0: humor, but we never talk about someone having a Norwegian or Chinese or German (laughs) sense of humor. How many many European senses of humor are there, would you say?
3: Oh, well, I mean, let's put it this way. I mean, some countries think they're incredibly funny, and they're not. (laughs) And some countries are incredibly funny, like the Brits. I'm sorry. I w- really, if I could choose my life over again, I would pray to be one of the Money Python members. <laughs> you know, I know that they played women themselves, but I swear to God, I would go drag for them. You know, it's um, I'm a stunted Monty Python, Mighty Pythoner, if you can say that. But yeah, I mean, I'm into the dark British humor that is absolutely completely my style. But, you know, go to France. It's an audience. I mean, I always I try to compare like audiences, like how audiences react, because I've performed throughout Europe. I've never performed in Scandinavian countries, but I have performed throughout Austria, Switzerland, Holland. I've performed in France and Luxembourg and Monte Carlo. Each audience is like a separate personality. That's been really crazy to really discover. That, you know, the German audience, it's compared to the French audience, compared to the Dutch audience. It's a learning. It's a skill. It's like a learning by doing. And by the first night, you're like, oh, OK, all right. And then the next night, you're like, oh, God, i got to change that. And then the third night, you're like, oh, OK, I'm, I, I'm figuring them out. And then by the fourth night, you've kind of got it and you go on. But they are. They're like their own characters in their own way. It's different.
0: I mean, sometimes you're, you must be in a venue in a big city where there is more than one, many more than one nationality there. So you've got Germans laughing at one thing. You've got some French people that think that's really dumb and they're laughing (laughs) at something else. I mean, how do you, how do you manage that when you've got such a diverse group in front of you?
3: Well, I mean, you just, I have, a a large repertoire of things. And I mean, like I when I'm performing, I normally I I have like six or seven numbers that I do. And then in each one of these numbers, some jokes are going to sit with some and some jokes are going to sit with others. But that's part of the life of comedy. Anyway, I think you can tell the same joke on a different night and get a different reaction, even with the same nationality. It depends on how you set it, how you set it up, If your timing is off, if they're what mood they're in, like you can kind of judge the mood of people, you know, I performed like we would always get messages from the stage manager and be like, you know, Corey. And we have like a private sold audience with a lot of Arabs. Please don't do this, 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 and this joke. Because we don't want to offend this, you know, sort of Muslim Arab group because they're incredibly stiff. And then I'm like, you know, this is my job to judge that. Let me feel that. You pay me every night to judge how far I can go. And let me feel that. And let me see. And the funny thing is, the ones that they're the most afraid of, are the ones that turn out to be the farthest that you could go. It's funny. And I would be like, dude, I should not have done that. And maybe for a group of nuns, I probably wouldn't pull out the d- jokes. But, you know, am I allowed to say that? <laughs> am I, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. You can beat me on that one, yeah. But, you know, you got to choose your audience, pick your audience a little bit. But... I think the comedians, we have enough sensibility in us after the thousands of years that I've been harassing Germans for cash and the rest of the nationalities as well, that I really do think that that's part of a comedian's job is to be able to sense what your audience is and how far you can push it. And that's why, you know, you can have a set repertoire, but that doesn't mean that you don't go off on a tangent because you see that the audience is just with you and you're just piling it on more and more in that 12-minute number that your stage manager relies on to keep the (laughs) timing of the show turns into an 18-minute one and they're pissed when you walk off stage. So this is what, that's the joy of what I, that's what I'm really missing. This is what I'm really, this sort of one-on-one comedy is wonderful, but I am missing being in front of a bunch of people and being stupid. I miss it. This coronavirus can beat it now, as far as I'm concerned. It's enough. We get it. You've got the power. You're winning at the moment, but it's enough. It's time. I would love to see what normal life is going to be like, because we have to find some sort of semblance of it soon. I mean, don't you agree? Oh my goodness, absolutely. I
0: mean I think I think everybody in particularly in the arts where so much is shuttered around the world, I mean nobody's working at all. I mean, and that's just so hard for multitudes of people in every country. I'm curious about the German government's response to COVID in terms of the arts. So here in America we're all being very grateful for seventy five million dollars that was distributed via the National Endowment for the Arts back in the spring. But to what extent is the German government supporting? the arts during this time?
3: Well, I mean, in the beginning when this all happened, I mean, Germany in general has a huge love of the arts and has always been a huge supporter of it. So for that, I'm incredibly thankful. I mean, in the beginning when this all happened, they had a 90 million euro fund that they opened up to all freelance comedians and freelance performers, not just comedians, but freelancers in general. And you could apply and they would either give you 5,000 euros, it was in in your account in like 24 hours. It was incredible. You had to wait, like to sign up, they would tell you like, you're waiting number (laughs) 353,942. And we'll send you an email when it's an hour before to sign up, you know, so it took about two days to, you know, wait in line with 350,000 people in front of you. But then once you got in, you signed up and boom, 24 hours later, that money was on your account. And then would, they would offer you 9000 if you had like a theater or people that worked for you or this type of thing. So depending on if you, like I am a freelancer that works for herself. I don't have anybody that I have to pay because there are a lot of theaters that have like a secretary that, that you're not able to pay. And that's what the extra money would come from. But until the money is run out. That's the problem is for now, you know, in February, I think the last time we spoke, you know, that money had just arrived and there was this big sort of take this, this is all here. And then, of course, now they're looking back and they're saying, okay, a lot of people applied for it that shouldn't have. A lot of people took advantage of it and applied two or three times. And now the German government is saying as the first of October, they're going to start doing audits and then they're going to see, okay, did you really need that money? Did you really need it? Because then we'd like to have it back if you didn't. So this is what, you know, in the beginning, what we had in February, March, this sort of utopian, take this 5,000 euros for the arts, we absolutely love you. And it's yours to keep run fly through the fields. This is now unfortunately, what I'm seeing, at least now what I've been discussing with my tax man, is that, you know, now they're going to look back and say, you need to prove to us that those six jobs that did get canceled, that you had an 80% cancellation clause, why didn't you go for that? Well, why didn't I? make an agency pay me 80% of the money they never received is because I want to work for them again in the future, not bankrupt them. Because of course, legally, they did have to pay me 80%. But would I ever as a human being ask for that? Never. So this is the dilemma that we're in now, months later, the German government do love the arts, and they really do love the people that are performing and doing these things but on the other side they're also saying okay wait a minute you know we did this for you guys but we're looking now and realizing hmm some of you <laughs> might have taken advantage of the system so ugh i don't know it's it's amazing and much more than america is and for that i'm incredibly thankful that i wasn't in the states when all of this happened, because I would have been in huge trouble. But here, of course, you know, it's, it's a handout, but with a little bit of a bite to the hand at the moment. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. I can tell you more in December, you know, once the taxes have finally <laughs> been turned in and whether or not I have to pay anything back. And then you're going to hear me complain, you know, or be like, yeah, the German government's the best. So yeah, it's the nonstop red tape bureaucracy worldwide.
0: And just the fact that we don't know when it's going to end. So, you know, we might have money was given out with in goodwill back in February thinking, well, we'll be through this by August. And of course, Exactly. now
3: we're not. And if your rent is 10 euros a month, 5,000 euros can last you a year and a half. But nobody has rent, especially. I mean, Berlin is cheap compared to anywhere else in the world. But, you know, even Berlin is expensive. If your rent was 10 bucks, 5,000 euros is going to help you. But 5,000 euros now in September, that would have been gone already and then you're back to zero. Same thing, same old, same old. So, it's it's a hard situation.
0: Do you think in terms of comedy are we ready to laugh at a global pandemic yet? Or is it going to take a while?
3: No, but I am just amazed at the amount of creativity that has come out of it. I mean, I think yes. I think truth is always going to be stranger than fiction. This is one thing that has never been more true than now. And the funny thing is how creative the people have been during lockdown, just the songs and the music and the poetry and the magic that have come from people and what they've done while they were literally in lockdown. And for that, I mean, we will have to, yeah, you can laugh at this because we are all in the end suffering through this together. And we've got to find a way to make it more lighthearted because if we kept it at the truth of the hardcore truth of it, how can you get through that, you know? So, yes, I think comedy is always a necessary bomb for the soul, for anything. Not that I'm saying, you know, starving children in Yemen is something you need to, you know, chucka chucka about. But if you can find somehow some lightheartedness in this tragedy, I think that that's the only way we can kind of get through it all without not wanting to jump from the nearest bridge. So finding a way to make it a little less so is the goal as far as I'm concerned.
0: Well, Corey, talking to you always brightens my day. And I could, I mean, we could just do this for hours. But unfortunately, we are out of time. So I have to say I have to love you and leave you and say thank you so much from all the way in Germany. And I can't wait to get back to Berlin and come and see you again.
3: (laughs) I can't wait to see you too, hugging you from a very long distance, elbow to elbow. And thank you so much again for asking me and having me on. And as always, it's a pleasure talking with you.
0: Thank you Corey We'll chat to you chat to you again sometime I'm looking forward to it bye and that is it for another week. Don't forget to vote for your favourite monologue at Talking Horse Productions. It really is impossible to choose just one single favourite, but that's okay. You can do like me and vote for more than one. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at Kopn. Thanks again to my guests today, art therapist Michelle Itzak, artistic director Adam Bretzky, and comedian Corey Ott. Thanks also to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song, Restless Heart, at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. Finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks Behind the Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia!